Do you love the Nuku Kaupapa? Listening to amazing wahine and being part of this movement of collective wisdom, changing the narrative for future generations? Wanuku relies solely on koha, grants and merchandise sales to survive. We are now at the halfway mark to the Nuku 100 and we need your help. From November the 16th to December the 16th, we have a live boosted campaign to fundraise Putia to support Nuku. The money will be directly invested into getting us closer to profiling 100 kick-ass indigenous wahine doing things differently. If you can donate, please visit boosted.org.nz and search for Nuku. If you can't, kete pai. We ask you to please share the Boosted link to your friends and whānau. You can find it on our website, nukuwoman.co.nz and on our social media pages, at nukuwoman. Mauri ora. Today we celebrate the halfway mark of the Nuku 100 with a very special Nuku 50. Linda Aumua is a passionate advocate for educational equity for Pacific peoples in Aotearoa. She is also the mama of our videographer Taylor. Linda has worked in community development and as a teacher, director and senior policy analyst, transforming lives through access and success in education from preschool to tertiary, both here and in Fiji. In this episode, we talk about the power of education, Linda's experience working across the Pacific, Indigenous female leadership, and we talk about motherhood, from the lessons her own mother taught her to the one she is imparting on her own children. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Bola. Bola. <laughs> um, today we have Linda Almoa and we're in her whare. And Linda Almoa is Nuku number 50. So firstly, I want to celebrate that we are halfway through the Nuku 100. And it's significant to have you, Linda, as number 50 because you are in some form part of the Nuku whanau. Um twice removed <laughs> because Linda is our videographer Taylor is Taylor's mama and so I think it's so special that I get to talk to you today it is so special that you are our Nuku number 50 and um, I just watched Taylor video you and as we photographed you and I it was really beautiful to actually see that moment of mother and daughter, um, which is, I'm getting a little bit emotional now, jeez, didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> Me that way too. <laughs> I think it's just really special watching that, when I think of the significance of Nuku, the significance of Taylor to Nuku, mm-hmm. and the significance of you to Taylor. And so, thank you for being our number 50, and for inviting us into your beautiful home. Um, and so I don't take over this entire conversation. Mm-hmm. I was talking about all the good juju stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but before you start, I do want to say thank you. And thanks for acknowledging me. Um, just it's an honour to be Nuku's 50th as well. Because um, I didn't, I mean, I hear the wonderful stories when Taylor comes home, but you never consider yourself to be a nuku, a nuku, a wahine. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming up home. 
oh, you're most welcome. And you know, it's not just favoritism. We didn't just choose you because you were Taylor's mum. You are an amazing kick-ass Indigenous woman who has done some phenomenal things for Pacific people in the education space. And before we get into that corridor, I wanted to first ask you to share with us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Right. Well, um, I was born in New Zealand um, in the little hospital that many people would become were, were familiar with, St. Helens Hospital, the old St. Helens Hospital. Um, and I uh, was taken to Fiji with my family and we resided there till I returned with my family when I was 13. And um, there were many reasons why we returned, but one of the most important, of course, is education. So I came here, started, uh, well, ended my last year of intermediate school, and then uh, started high school. So I returned with all of my family. Wow. Mm. What was that time like living in Fiji? Because were you too young to know the difference between New Zealand and Fiji at the time you were living there? No, um, my parents did bring me back um, for a couple of months. They wanted to, they had actually bought a house here and so they wanted to redo it. I ended up going to school, I still remember, Matapo Primary in Te Arutu North um, for two months and I had to wear um, these corduroy pinafore dresses with stockings and I just couldn't get with it. And so I do clearly remember the differences and how wonderful life in the islands is and how free it is Mm. and you know I was never dressed and locked in in my clothing but always enjoyed the coming home from school with the sandals and throwing them on the floor and then onto the beach and into the water and so life yeah very clear difference. When you came back, so your family came back and one of the key reasons was education, did you think at that time that you would forge a career in education? Not at all. I didn't know what I wanted to to do. Um, And coming here, I do remember clearly, though, that I hated being here. Mm -hmm. I hated the contrast and the culture and the people. I found the people very unfriendly um, and it was hard to the words assimilate to actually blend in Um, but when I did come here um, I was identified as Māori and um, I still remember my first intermediate teacher Mrs Ngata who took me with um, open arms and uh, really looked after me and nurtured me and many people in my class were were Māori so um, I suppose I found a place that wasn't really my place but it enabled me to to grow and learn mm. and I was um, you know in a, in a new culture and when I was 13 I still remember meeting my first Samoan <laughs> <laughs> you know this is going back some years right this, um, that first Samoan must have made an impression because you twins, <laughs> twins. they were twins I still remember them very clearly and I still know that they're here in Auckland so wow. um, I still remember clearly the differences that um, I came across coming to New Zealand being uh, someone who came from the Pacific to Aotearoa and um, fitting in, I suppose, with the Māori community, yes. have you found that be a similar experience for you growing up? Like, have you has that been the community that you found um, closest connection with here, or has the Pacific community now grown so much in Aotearoa that mm-hmm. you've got your own space? now within this space that's a really good question because when I came here you know you could identify um, who the Fijians were Mm. and there was like four of us 
you know, and you knew the families and the mothers all came together and your families came together and you sort of sat and you celebrated odd things together. Um, and so, yes, you were very much part of the Māori community and the Māori community wholeheartedly accepted and embraced you. you. You didn't have any indifference. And I think in many ways that really helped through... Um, I suppose my life in New Zealand because I didn't have any Fijian connection here mm. and um, gradually as you get to know people and you get to know Samoans and who they are and then you get to know you know the Tongans because you didn't I didn't have that blend back in Fiji so um, yeah was very much that's why I always remember Mrs Ngata mm. <laughs> and so <laughs> just thinking about the contrast between Aotearoa and Fiji, obviously we have the temperature difference. We have the, the pure paradise mm. difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but was there a language difference? Did you, did you have much of a challenge with language at that time? Um, yeah, I've always had challenges with um, language. My mum is full Fijian. Um, and I suppose back in those days, my father is... is Pakia, he's Palangi. And when they married, I always remember my mum saying, you must always speak um, English out of respect for your father. And so English was our home, our, our language that we used. We never used Fijian. Um, and that was, I always thought, was out of respect for my dad. My mum never spoke Fijian in the house. Wow. Um, she always just respected him, and that was the way that we communicated. So my Fijian is very... Um, Bitsy, like I'm not a fluent speaker. Um, if someone spoke to me in Fiji and I would understand you, but um, in replying back to you, I wouldn't have that confidence in it. And it's funny because I wanted to learn that language, um, but I've never actually had the opportunity. I've actually run Fijian language classes for community, but I've never been able to attend them myself. So uh, it's one of the things that, um, yeah, language has never really been something that I've been strong within, but I know that I need to do that. Mm. as is my daughter as well mm. and my children <laughs> <laughs> and so you have three children and their father is someone which is why I pointed out the fact that that mm. first someone meeting must have made quite an impression on you <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many Fijians remember I told you that so you, your options weren't as great as they were Samoans it's, it was a fact <laughs> it was a fact there were more some, there were more Samoans than I'd never seen ever seen before mm. Mm. Did you did raising your three children in Aotearoa with Fijian Samoan heritage in a country that was of neither of your whakapapa, mm-hmm. How what was that like and what did you want to do differently for your children knowing that this was the environment they were being raised in? Wow. Um, you know, you don't have those kind of thoughts when you first get together, right? <laughs> But when, you, when we did bring our children, and um, my husband's fluent speaker, very entrenched in his Samoan culture, um, one of the things we have done is we've taken our children back to the islands, like we've taken our children back to Samoa to show them where this is where Dad is from and all the rest of it, and mm. this is where Mum is from. And I dare say that I've had a stronger pull on my children back to Fiji because that's my homeland and I'm the mother. <laughs> And I'm the mother. Um, so I've always made sure that they're firmly connected to both sides. And I think that's something that both Joe and I share. Um, but I will, would say that my mum was very, a very staunch Fijian, very entrenched in her culture, even though she took that 
that perspective of respecting, you know, her, her husband. And I suppose that was the way they were brought up as well. She was very entrenched in her culture and very staunch um, Fijian woman um, and always made sure that we understood and valued the protocols of Fiji and Fijian people. So I've always brought my children back, brought them back into the village, and I have done with my children in Samoa and brought them back into the village. Mm. So... Um, and they, you know, we try and keep the families close. Where did this love of education come from for you? Mm. That's a really long story, can't it? Um, it's all right, I, we've got time. Okay. <laughs> um, education has always interested me because when I came from Fiji, um, I thought that I was pretty good speaking English. Um, and then it wasn't until I actually came into intermediate school into high school that I realised actually my English was not as um, as polished as I thought it was because when you speak broken English or you join your Fijian words you think you've got it pretty much sussed but when you come here it's like what did you say? What, what did you, how did you pronounce that? And I'm like okay so English uh, education when I came back was really challenging for me and like I said I really didn't enjoy coming to New Zealand and so as I went through high school I hated it um, I was the monitor for every sports um, uh, area that you could be I was the volleyball monitor the softball monitor the athletes monitor. So I was always outside of the classroom doing all of those jobs so that I would avoid going into class but I never missed a day of school I want to make sure that you know that I never missed a day of school but I never used to go to class so I was a real failure when it came through um, school school certificate In those days it was school certificate and uh, sixth form sixth form I repeated again so I wasn't what you'd call a great scholar um, but one that always avoided class mm. and so funny enough I did actually go back to um, secondary school when I'd failed at the second time my sixth form the second time and uh, got my sixth form certificate and then I moved into primary school teaching and I thought I never want a child to go through what I just did so here's where I'm going to make that difference. So I really concentrated on, um, I went back to um, Te Aratu Intermediate, where there were a lot of um, Māori and Pacific children. And I thought, this is where I'm going to put all my energy and ensure that they come through the education se sector successfully. And I know, and I'll know, and I'll understand where they've come from, and I'll know the challenges they've seen. So yeah, that's where it all stemmed from. Wow. My own failure, my own failings. And what are you, what, I mean, we're talking about not wanting to repeat your experience, but what have been the ambitions for you for these Pacific children here in Aotearoa as your career has gone on? Um, I suppose I've, I've always had in, in mind and in heart that if I can actually enable these Pacific students or these Pacific children to do well, the impact and the socioeconomic impact on those families would be greatly enhanced and if I just do the one child and if I have 30 or 45 in the classroom the impact that I will have will be tenfold mm -hmm. as it expands out so the job the task is pretty much laid as soon as the child walks in the classroom you think that's a, that's work for me to do so yeah and, and I've done that right throughout, I suppose, because I moved through primary and then into the tertiary sector. Has there been more impact in the tertiary sector than you were able to do in primary? 
um, different? I, I, I think I, because I only stayed, you know, 10 years in, the, in teaching um, primary, I've then started to lean towards the private training establishment. And I was lucky enough to have a sister who was just starting the first Pacific training establishment. And with that, I saw the lack of success that our Pacific students had had had, had um, through the secondary sector. So I thought, OK, this is, where, again, where I'll invest my time. And so I suppose I spent more time on the tertiary sector than I have in the primary. Yeah. In the um, So you've worked both here in Aotearoa in the tertiary sector and you've actually gone back to Fiji to work in Fiji as well. Mm. And what was the role that you had or what was some of the work that you were doing in Fiji? Um, I was the director of the Fiji Higher Education Commission and that role was to really look at um, building tertiary systems um, for the whole of the country so that um, I could support the universities. There were three universities there and there were 58 um, providers, train, training providers. And so I was trying to develop systems so that these institutions could be accountable for their performance, but also accountable for their um, a financial contribution that the ta- taxpayer offers, mm. but also building qualifications for Fiji. So um, it was sort of threefold, big, a big role that was to move across the whole of the country. And it's no surprise that the Fijian government and the New Zealand government are very different and the way that, Fijian, that Fiji operates yes. um, and the system that it operates under is very different mm-hmm. to how New Zealand operates. What were some of those differences and were there challenges um, in going home and working for or working under a system that was so different to yeah. Aotearoa? Yeah. I, I suppose, Kiani, there there's lots of differences, but there's also a lot of similarities. Mm. So if you look at the way, and, you know, dare I say, the way that the government moves, moves here around um, um, how it supports or how it creates initiatives and develops policies and um, how it rolls these out is not any indifferent to the Pacific, but the Pacific is more outright and in front. So if there's anything that's not um, conducive to the way that things are meant to be done, it's done straight in front of your face when you're in the Pacific. Say in New Zealand, it's done in a very... um, um, It's a subtle way that moves through the systems Mm. and then you feel the impact, whereas in the Pacific it's like, here, change. Whereas here it's very... um, no, manipulative is not the right word, but it manoeuvres itself in a totally mm. different way. And that's because we have systems here that enable that. And when you're in the Pacific, you don't get that. And, you know, for example, if a minister here wants to roll out a different policy or create a different initiative, it will go through a particular processes. Whereas when you're in Fiji, the minister will come straight to you and say, Linda, this is how I want it done. <laughs> Wow. So it, it, and it's right in your face, and you either comply or you don't. And so, whereas here you can watch the news and you can see things change, you know, and it's, it's. And different people feed into the idea, and then the idea is tested. That's right. And then we decide if the idea continues, but that's not necessarily the case. No, you'll have a series of advisors, like you, you know, you see with COVID, that you've got a series of advisors that advises the prime minister and all the ministers. But over there, you can have the minister who is the leader and the directive of what it is that he or she would like a response to. 
So, yeah, it, it's challenging um, because you, there are no systems for you to be able to move policy through. Um, it's just a directive. Have you ever felt a cultural difference as a woman? Because you've worked in both countries, you've lived in both countries, you um, have whakapapa to one country and whakapapa by way of living here for most of your life in the other country. Has there been a difference in you being a woman in this space? I think in the beginning when I started going into management or senior management, I did feel a huge difference, but as I've um, grown in confidence and um, I know my place, mm. I know where, um, where I stand when I come into an organisation and if I head it, then I'll head it. And I suppose I've always taken that stance and when I, you know, um, go into particular positions, for example, when I went into Fiji, you know, culturally you're, you're a woman and you have a right to speak when you should be, you know, at, in particular cultural events. I'm, I'm very good with that, I'm okay with that, but when it comes to leading the organisation and standing, I'll take the reins. And um, I don't have any problem with that anymore. <laughs> and is that, has that just come with age and experience, not having a problem with that anymore? Or has there been an event that sort of... No, I think, I, I think I've always been stubborn. I think it's just the manner in which I do it now mm. is a lot more... Um, um, uh, I don't know the word, but I, I suppose I'm a lot more appropriate in the way that I ad- address address an organisation or how I manage an entire organisation. Yeah, I I suppose you do grow and you grow into the leadership Mm. and often leadership can be different in the different roles that you take. Um, Mm. And that's, yeah, and that's something that you learn to grow and and move with. But I think knowing that you, if you know that you're the leader or you know that you're the person that actually is fully responsible for particular areas, then that's the mantle you take. And you, I mean, not a, there are some pockets of communities who people just know who you are and there are others who people, you know, don't know about this um, sector and so won't know you at all. Yep. But I have met people who have talked about you and who have described... Don't worry, don't <laughs> smile. It's a good thing. I take good and bad. It's another thing you do when you're in leadership, you take both. No, who have spoken about your leadership and the power of your leadership to create change and the inspiration that you are in your leadership positions. And Taylor sent me a little thing about you and she described you as gutsy as hell. And when I think about women and I think about Pacifica and Māori women, gutsy, strong leaders, mm. is, I'm just like, yes, that is exactly the kind of woman that I want my daughter to, to yeah. see and know and learn from. Mm. What have you learnt the most in these leadership positions um, knowing that, you know, you've got, you do have a lot of power, you do have a lot of influence and there are lots of people watching you. Yeah. And there are lots of women watching you in these spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's um, you know like I mentioned before, Kiani, there's a confidence that comes with with leadership, and when you have that reassurance, you've got to know your job, mm. and you've got to be sure of your job, um, and when you know it and you know it well, um, you can put a stake in the ground and say this is how it's going to be, and this is how it is, um, so you don't have to 
sort of you're not hesitant in your decision you're sure of your decision and you're sure about how this is going to come about and that's through learnt process and understanding of how businesses and organisations work and so I think you stand with the surety that when you make a decision it's the right one How do you deal with people who think it's the wrong one? With great difficulty (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I'm, I, I will give um, people the message in which I want them to receive. Mm. And if people aren't receiving it well, it is no problem for me to say, could I please pull you aside for 10 minutes? I just need to have a conversation with you. Why is it that you aren't here? Why aren't you, you know? So uh, I'm one of those people who will give you the message. And if people aren't following it, it's no problem for me to confront that person and say, openly tell me what it is that's not sitting with mm. you well. And how is it that I can change to actually bring you on board with me or is this something we just have to compromise you've held a number of different roles in your career and as we've already discussed you you've been a teacher and you've been a manager and you've been a head of department um you've been a director but you've also been a senior policy analyst and have been able to influence at that policy level, what education for Pacifica peoples mm. looks like. Mm. What has been a highlight of your career so far? Well, I, I suppose one of the things I did learn around um, policy and being a pol- policy analyst was, you know, how you accumulate that in- that information and how you input into cabinet papers and how you follow that process through Parliament um, was was good learning for me because I had a whole lot of knowledge around education in the education sector, but actually realised that then the way to change education in the direction of Pacific people was really through policy. Mm. And so, um, interesting enough, if I can take you to where it is that I'm going now, um, Keanu, is that um, although I'm still working within the tertiary sector, I've decided that finally, after my (laughs) very old years, I've decided to do my PhD. And so within my PhD, I want to look at policy and policy development. And not just... um, policy itself, but how does policy um, process um, occur through communities so that when a policy is actually um, signed, sealed and delivered by Parliament, how has Māori or Pacific been inputted into that process to make sure that we um, stand firmly with that policy and we're happy to implement it? And so I wanted to look at, for example, Pacific people's input into the tertiary education strategies. So that's where I'm going. So I've looked at the tertiary education strategies and how do Pacific people input that input into those strategies, if at all, to enable us to have the impact for success. Mm. And so when you see inequities in education, often it's not always the institution and people buzzing around trying to make things work for people. Actually, it's the policy that has the greatest impact on that institution. And so it's the key to actually changing the inequities in order for those institutions to respond to it. And I think so many people who don't understand policy or the impact that policy has or they sort of see it as something above their head that, you know, it's not something that they would think about in their everyday lives. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that um, people can make the connection between here as a child who is, or here as a child or a student or whoever or a family yeah. who is not succeeding in education. They are of Pacifica heritage. They, are, they have all of these different um, things that we often see and hear about in the news and we hear all the, the failures. Mm. But they don't necessarily connect that with 
the policy and how that policy could change and I know that I, I come from a family of educators and so I understand that there are frameworks that we use for Māori and Pacifica students and there are different ways of teaching or different um, approaches that we have to be more inclusive of Māori and Pacifica yes. learnings and, and content and all of that sort of stuff um, but what yeah so that direct correlation between doesn't always yeah. doesn't link clearly. <laughs> I know. And so if you if you look at education, and f- for example, if I if I looked at Pacific education in the tertiary sector, you know we've had the tertiary education strategies for the, over twenty years, and yet the disparities still exist, the inequities still exist of all the work that all the communities do for their people, and all of the people that are in the institutions that are Maori and Pacific that work hard for their students. The disparities still exist. And often you get people that bandy the term, oh, there are systemic issues. Yes, <laughs> there are definitely systemic issues. The whole oh, system is the issue, yes. Yeah, and so it all stems back to um, policies. And so these large entities of institutions that carry, you know, our students, you know, some of these institutions, you know, carrying 30,000 30, 30, students, you know, 20,000 students. Mm. These huge institutions are res- respond to policies and policy directions. And so that is the strongest, I always say it's the Bible. It's, it's the Bible of institutions to actually follow and adhere to. So that's, for me, I want to go and have a look at that. Mm. Um, as a wahine Māori, mm. or wahine Māori and Pacifica, mm-hmm. Um, who has grown up in South Auckland in an education system that doesn't favour my way of learning or my ambition. I actually had a careers teacher say to me when I said I wanted to become a journalist, say, I think you should choose something else. Mm. Um, there is, there, you know, there are definitely lots of things that need to change yeah. <laughs> yeah. within uh, the education space in Aotearoa to cater to the needs of Pacifica. What are some of those things? Like, what are some of the more practical things that we could be looking at now that would enable more Pacifica, I want to say just women, because that's what I'm all about, but enable more Pacifica women to follow those pathways, to achieve what they want to. What are some of those practical things that we could be changing or what, yeah, influencing? It, w- it would be really nice if communities could rally together to um, look at some of the policies, look at some of the directives in which these institutions and really challenge them. Mm. Um, one of the key things at the moment which I'm following with um, great interest is um, Waikato University and its position around racism within the system. And, you know, here you've got top academics powerful, well-acknowledged, respected academics who have come together to make a stance. Mm. How powerful that is. And it's swept right throughout the country. Every institute, and I bet you every vice-chancellor and these huge entities are watching with great caution around how this is going to play out. And that's the power power of people coming together um, to challenge um, a system and to challenge the way things, that you know, your status quo. And the, that's what I'm saying. These institutions are very, very powerful. You know, if I could give you an example that I experienced, which is why I wanted to look at the tertiary education strategies, I still remember in 2002, so I'm going back a fair way, 2002 was when the tertiary education strategies were first released. 
Mm. Pacific weren't consulted. Pacific weren't even um, given a thought. But what the Pacific community did was they rallied together and they all met together in South Auckland and pulled their ideas together around, if we had a tertiary, if there was going to be a tertiary strategy, what it would look like for Pacific people. We created a document and we gave it to the Ministry of Pacific People. And interesting enough, Jenny Salesa, who's now the um, a minister, she was the um, policy advisor. She picked it up and she placed it inside of the tertiary education strategies. That was our first one. Now, that was with the government not even giving us a thought, but that was about people gathering and, and creating a groundswell to have the impact that was needed. And so through each of those, I've tried to keep the tertiary education strategies close to me and advocate very, very closely to ensure that Pacific people are seeing, which is why um, I was seconded into the Ministry of Pacific Island Affairs at that time to actually make sure that I had an overview of the tertiary education strategies and that Pacific remained in it. So there's little political shifts inside of a huge system to try and ensure that Pacific people remain inside of this document. Mm. Um, and even today, it was tried. It has tried to be sidelined. So I'm very interested. I'm trying to actually have a view of it, which the government has been pretty closed in on. So you've got to have these people that keep an eye out for these things. Mm. And that inclusion really interests me because... Here in Aotearoa, we are still fighting for Māori inclusion in these policies mm -hmm. and um, in a lot of decisions that are being made about Indigenous people of Aotearoa. And we see our Pacific um, whānau as our brothers and sisters. And how do we work together in this space? Because there are, there are not that there's two camps, but there are, um, I have seen polarising views, I yes. think, on how Pacifica are included in certain things. On the one sense, it's when we, you know, if Māori are achieving, Pacifica are achieving what is good for us, is good for all of us, yes. let's move together. And then there's another um, frame of thought, which is let's get Māori over the line first and then Pacifica can yes. follow. Yes. And I don't know what the right answer or approach to that is and as someone who has dual Māori and Pacifica heritage I mean works for me when we're all moving together um, but I'm interested in this in this discussion because here in Aotearoa we have a huge Pacific community we are the we are the big yes. you know we are the tuakana in the Pacific we are the bigger island yes. to look out for our younger islands yes. um, which are actually probably our older islands but our yeah. our younger siblings and um, I'm just interested in, in the discussion around how we prioritise Pacifica mm. in Aotearoa mm. and what that actually means for New Zealand because it does have a huge positive impact yeah. um, because a lot of, you know, we have more Nuaeans living in New Zealand than we do living in Nui. Yeah. And these sorts of things are really important for us to be considering here. Yeah, it's a, always a really, really interesting discussion and it's really interesting how communities, I, from what I've, I've seen and experienced, is that communities play it out totally different from way, the way the government does. The communities in the Pacific communities will always acknowledge tangata whenua. They understand land ownership, they understand cultural values, they understand Indigenous peoples and their rights. They are fully aware of that and often when you listen to a community uh, person speak, they will always acknowledge tangata whenua first and foremost because the same would be for example if you came to Fiji I know that you would come over as you did greet me you said bulla okay and 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 just naturally you'll know this is the land of of Fijians this mm. is the land of the Samoans and so we have that understanding and I think that when you're in New Zealand um 
we still see that tangata whenua has to come first and foremost. First and foremost, priority are over everything, um, and they need to be positioned that way. When you look at government and how they see um, Māori, and I'm you know saying this generally as, as a non-speaking Māori, um, is oh, sorry as as a non-Māori, is that you have to fight for your position to be seen within particular structures. Yeah. Um, it's not a given. You have to state and name and claim. And I think that that shift is slowly coming, but I think for many areas there's still that battle. Um, so I see it in two different ways. Um, I see it as a community person that, um, you know, when I look at Fiji and, you know, when I went back to Fiji and I thought, oh, great, this is going to be a time when I can come back and I can, you know, really get into the language and um, really get back into my culture. The first thing the government said to me, you don't speak Fiji in here, it's English. Wow. So, you know, and I saw people rallying in the in Parliament in Fiji and trying to get Fijian language to be spoken as the indigenous language in Parliament and they said no, this will only be English and so when you come to um, Aotearoa you think you know, let's let's get Māori over the line, let's make sure that everything is embraced so that they as a people own and belong and are seen in this country as mm. I, I, I don't know how to emphasise it, it's just it really rocks me up. <laughs> it rocks me up, you know, that... And because a lot of New Zealanders don't think outside of Aotearoa, they just think of here and they yeah. haven't experienced or seen, which is why I think the community's perspective and government perspective, they're quite different. Mm. Mm. Is there something... I mean, I know that the... Um, Equity and education for Māori still has a very long way to go. But is there something from that journey that you have witnessed that you would um, think would work so well for Pacifica or you could borrow for for Pacifica education equity? Wow. Um, That's a really interesting question. Because from my perspective, when I look at Māori, um, I see that... um, Māori have not valued the education sector as much as I see Pacific because Māori have not um, been welcomed into the system, haven't been able to achieve, you know, success in a greater number. And so when I speak to um, students sometimes, yeah, yeah, miss, yeah, I'm going to do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Pacific parents are adamant. Mm. You come here, you educate yourself. They've, they've still got that migrant um, mentality, you know. So it's like you come here, you drive yourself hard, you do well, and you achieve. Um, and so it kind of saddens me that sometimes when you um, work with Māori students, I, I want to fire them up. I want to mm. get them hungry for it, and I want them to, you know. But that they they manage well. They don't. The values are different. And so it's been really entrenched in us that we have to achieve an education. But for Māori, you know, just from my experience, the values for education are quite different. They value things differently. Mm. It's not all about education. It's more about whānau. It's more about the family and, you know, communities. Not, Not that Polynesians are any different or, you know, we're any different, but we're driven hard, Mm. dare I say. We're driven hard. And there is, I get that, I do get that, because especially for Māori communities who are still 
still cementing their identity as Māori on their whenua and their marae, the priority, you know, so in my family, the priority is work for your marae. Like, not yes. not work for your marae, but the priority, while there is a high priority for education, of course, um, and I come from a family of educators, so, you know, mm. it was always like, make sure you pass and do all of these sorts of things. Um, there, there is a stronger priority for give back to your marae, protect your whenua, yes. stand up for your tinoranga, tiratanga, yes. and those things. And, and again, these are all, both for Pacifica and Māori, are consequences of colonisation because our priorities have to shift to what our identity is as a Māori or as a Pacifica person in this country at this time. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 I just find that, it, and I don't know whether it's because we've come into Aotearoa and we don't have that base to actually fight for the stance of a, as a people um, because we've left our land. Um, so we don't have that whole... Mm, it's really hard to describe. Mm. Yeah. And, and when, I, when I sit with students and I say, OK, now list out all of your priorities... The priorities and the values for various students and different types of students all are very are varied, and so you can't kind of nail it down. But when I speak to Pacific students, boy, it's and when they fail or they don't do well, there's a I don't know are they reprimanded? Are they, are they um, you know really? Um, Does that certain kind of footwear come out? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like and they're you know they're addressed around around it, and I think that's what's really hard. And I think that that value that we have around education causes a lot of mm. dare I say damage to our communities because that's the ideal success. Mm. And whose values did we take on, and who drives us, and why? And the certain kinds of education as well, like doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Whereas, yeah, I really, really need a mechanic. <laughs> and that's just as valuable Absolutely. in the community Absolutely. scheme of things. But if you come into our communities, mm. you, people will say, oh, yeah, doctor so-and-so, yeah, they, they'll, sit, they'll sit over here. So, uh, you know, one of my um, colleagues would, would say to me, you know, when you're in the Pacific community and if you don't have any... Um, um, you don't have a hierarchy or you're not acknowledged in your family as anything, but once you get your doctor, your photo will go up and you'll get a nice, <laughs> you'll get a nice lay around it, you know. So it's, it's perceptions and values and whose values. I think that's what, mm. and I always feel for our students and our communities about, you know, whose values and, who, yeah, mm. whose values are we taking on? Speaking of doctors, yeah. one of your children is one. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to talk about because he's a boy and we don't talk about boys at Nuku. Okay. But um, I'm going to transition our court at all because I want to also fit into this conversation your role as a mother and your role as a now a grandmother. Yes. Um, Bonus. <laughs> your role as a mother, but your role so as a daughter yeah. and then as a mother and now as a grandmother and being a Pacific woman in this. Um, strong leadership space mm. with a reputation that precedes you for being strong in these leadership spaces. What do you value or what do you take from from your career um, and bring into your parenting 
if anything, are there are there values that sh- are shared amongst the you don't sides ask of your these you? sides of your life? Oh, I only ask these questions to people I know who can handle it. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think I I don't know whether I bring anything into it, but um, I hope that I role model mm. um, what I what and how I want my children to be, and I have to say hand on heart, that my mum's expectations, my mother's expectations of us were very high. And I have not been lenient on my children either. And my expectations are really high. And so um, for everything that my children have wanted to do, I back them to choose what it is that you want to do. I'll back you. Um, I made sure that I was in a position to be able to do that financially so that I could back their dreams and make them you know, who they want, who they are today, I suppose, and continuing. Mm. Some people haven't finished yet um, and continuing. But um, I think there is good and bad in that, Hyani, is that I've actually been quite driven and that um, I have given a lot of my time to education and communities and everything else and at the same time left my children behind and but um, taught them to be self-surviving, I suppose, in many ways, but to... You know, they used to moan to me that they were this kids in primary, that they were this kids that went to the school the longest. They went to before school care <laughs> and after school care. So they'd be there at 7.30 and mm. I'd be picking them up at 6 o'clock at night because I had to, you know, I had to work and my expectations of them was that they would fulfil that and they would go to school for that long. They would come back. They would do their homework, everything. People would say I'd be very regimented, which I was, and... um there you go. Three children and one grandchild later. Yeah, but I think maybe, mm, I don't know. I, I still, yeah. I think the the education and expectations was so strongly embedded. Mm. Mm. I, I think about, you know, you're talking about um, your passion and your drive mm-hmm. and this, the drive for achieving something bigger than yourself and bigger than your family and the significant change that you're making to communities and generations of communities. And I think about Indigenous women Mm. who always do this, who we want to, you know, we are mothers and we, some of us are grandmothers and we have these families, but we also have this greater purpose that we are driven to do. Mm. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? And, so we we often <laughs> take on these roles that mean our children don't necessarily see us as much, but they see what we do yes. and they see what we give to community and that hopefully instills in them something similar. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> but I get but it comes to this point, um, and this is you know, this is not just about you, this is about woman I, I do this <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm a different generation from you as well I do this too and I think there comes a point where we give so much to our communities to create this change because we we must we have to yeah. we have this drive and this passion for equity and for the greater good and our children learn that but do we want that for our children do we want our children to also make the same or similar sacrifices for something bigger than them. Yeah. What's your thought? What are your thoughts on that? 
Gee, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I'm totally asking for personal my, reasons. My, my, my <laughs> response to that would be that, yes, in everything I do, and I hope in my children's, is that there's a purpose. Mm. And the purpose has to be greater than you because it's what's going to drive you, it's what's going to fuel you, and it's what's going to help you overcome all of those challenges that you face. And so when the purpose is bigger than you, um, there's always not, there's really nothing that, um, will restrict you from where, from where it is that you need to go or from what it is that you want to do. And, I, you know, um, one of the things that I did was I, I did leave my family and I left my husband for two and a half years to fulfil the contract in Fiji. But that was because the purpose was bigger than me and the purpose was bigger than my children. And that was that I felt that I was in... I've always had a, um, a sense that I need to give back, as is always our way um, to give back. But I always believed that if... If I was given this position, I was able to educate myself and I've enhanced and embraced all of these skills that were given to me. Who was I, who and for what purpose do, was I given that? And it's got to be for a bigger and greater cause. So it's bigger than my family. So it meant no problem for me to lift up and go live by myself and do the work that I needed to do, not only for my own people to give back, but because that was a blessing that was given to me in my journey in my life. Mm. So the purpose has always got to be bigger and the sacrifice to do it is even greater. But when it is, it comes back in abundance and blessings and the blessings will hopefully be touched by many, not just the few that you work with in your communities, but in a greater sense. So, yes, it's, and I would hope that my children would be exactly the same. And I've always said to them, you know, make sure you choose a career that gives back and has purpose for people because that's why you're here and it's got to be bigger than you. Mm. We were talking a little bit earlier and you were like, I can't repeat that because you've already said it, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to drag, drag but my white hair. Yeah, drag this little bit out of you because it was such gold and I think everyone has to hear this corridor because it was such gold and I was admiring your hair mm-hmm. because your hair is this beautiful white, grey, silver colour yeah. and <laughs> you own it yeah. and you rock it yeah. and it suits you and you were talking about um, the, the transition yes. of your hair yes. to this colour, well, stopping colouring it yeah. and, and allowing it to be what And appreciating, it appreciating <laughs> the, um, the growing old mm. and owning the grey hair. Mm. And you shared with me uh, a corridor that someone has shared with you about yes. the significance yes. of grey hair and mm. why you should embrace it. And I just wondered if you would be able... If I can remember what, what I said. <laughs> if you can share that yeah. with our Nuku woman. From what was said was that, you know, as you get older and as you get each grey strand of hair is that you need to embrace it because each strand is the wisdom that you've earned. And so, you know, love it, embrace it because mm. you've earned it. And so, hence... No dye, saving money, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, and no bother, I don't have to worry about, you know, new growth. I just, it, it is what it is. And so actually, it actually gives you a real sense of freedom. Um, like I said, you just, and I think when you get to this age, you just don't care anymore. Mm. There's other things that are bigger than dyeing my hair. <laughs> so I've got to that place. And so I own 
And I hope that each strand actually signifies some wisdom <laughs> earned, if not stress. I'm sure. I mean, just just this conversation alone where we've only touched the surface, mm. there is so much wisdom. Mm. I wanted to ask you, we've spoken a lot about your mum and um, I asked this of, of all of our nuku wahine and I'm assuming one of the answers is your mum. Yes. But who is an or who are some Indigenous women who have inspired you on your journey? Mm. Apart from my mother, my mum was a real leader. And I suppose in that time, it would be very hard for a woman. One thing I used to reflect on was my mum uh, married a European man, came to New Zealand, who whose parents were English. And she always used to tell me a story about when she came into his home and how they had silverware on the table. This is my mum who came from the village. And each of the, each spoon and knife and fork, the utensils were actually engraved with their signatures. Wow. And so when she came to sit at the table, she didn't know how to sit or to be with family because she wasn't given that place. And so I think of this really dark, she was black, black, you know, black woman coming into um, a new community, new society, new family, and all of the, the um, challenges that both my mum and dad having, you know, um, uh, a marriage that wasn't of the same culture mm. um, and looking starkly different from each other um, and the challenges that they would have had. So I've, I've always admired her and she's done, she did a lot. She, she passed away probably 15 years now, but she did a lot in her own life and worked through education and worked through South Pacific Commission and ended up at the United Nations and travelled the world around health. So um, she did extremely well. But one of the things that one of the ladies that I've really appreciated here in um, Aotearoa is a Samoan lady called Alatasi Lemalu. And um, she is a woman who I think she just works part time at Otago Polytechnic. But when I came into the tertiary sector, she's the one that pulled me by the ear and said, sit down and I'm going to tell you a story about how this came to be. And so um, I think with her telling me the story about the tertiary sector, um, she gave me long journeyed stories around, you know, there was a time when Māori, uh, there were Māori liaison officers inside the tertiary institutions, they were the first, and how um, Pacific came to meet with Māori and asked if they could please part the position and have a Māori liaison and a Pacific liaison. So she took me back to the journey of those beginnings and how... Um, it slowly evolved and for me to not lose sight of where they'd been so that I knew where I was going to go in this mm. in this journey forward. So um, she's been very significant and been a very strong mentor for me and doesn't hesitate in her ripe old age, I think she must be, you know, <laughs> to, to put me aside and say, oi, let me just take you aside once more. So um, you've still got those women in the community that, that still have the right to do that. Mm. And, and amazingly enough, no matter what position you are, no matter what role you play, you always fall into the cultural norm of, yes, okay. <laughs> yes, all right. All right. Did you want me to go and do that in the kitchen? Okay, I will. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's also a really beautiful segue. You know, she she had you look back to look forward. And so yes. I'm going to finish with you looking forward after we've looked back at a little bit of, just a very little bit of your career so yeah. far. Um, and, and so my final question to you is, what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? Well, I would hope that they would, um, 
I, I actually, I, I don't know whether I, I'd say hope, but I can see them forging ahead already now. Mm-hmm. So and hope of where they'll be, I don't think I hope of where they'll be. I can see them already um, coming to the forefront uh, in strength and a number and in positions. Um, we are not short. Mm. We are not short of strong women. Um, most of them wait their moment. If I could use that, they wait their moment until their families and everything else is in line, and then you'll see them come through. Mm. They all they know when their time is right, and a lot of them are just you know I don't want to say sitting there, but they're embracing everything and anything that's there. And there's a there's going to be a huge shift. It'll come, and it'll be very very powerful. And um, so I don't hope, I know that there's there sitting and waiting and they will just make sure the whānau is fine and then they'll move. I mean, how many women do we know that can take various positions but won't because they've still got a little one here and they, you know, because values, again, are different. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I don't hope, I know. I know that they will be there and they're just sitting there waiting for their moment. That is awesome. Um, I just, yeah. <laughs> what do I even say to that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, can't you see them? I can see, well, you, you, do you see them every day in your work? I, I, I see them. I, I, people walk into my office and I'm like, oh, even if it's a student that's first year, I'm like, oh, gosh, that kid just blew me away. Mm. That, kid, that student, I say kid, but that student's going to be a powerful force. And it's just, and it's laying and waiting. I um, I just want to thank you for sharing with us today. Taylor's been sitting here listening from the side, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know whether I might have learned anything new about your mum today, but I sure have. And it's been it's been really lovely to hear your story, knowing that I've heard. Um, different people talk about different elements of your career Mm. and to actually hear it from you has been a real privilege but I think it's been really special for me Um, here we go get emotional again Mm. but it's been really really special for me to be able to interview Taylor's mum and to have you as Anuku number 50 Um, thank you for raising beautiful children Mm. and thank you for raising one who um, is an integral part of Nuku (laughs) and it has been my absolute honour to to have you included and share your story because I think it is wonderful and the sacrifices that you have made um, for this greater good is going to impact and influence so many people in so many communities and thank you. Kia ora. Kia ora.